Welcome to Element. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. If you ever have taken one before and you've lost it or got rained on and got that big because it's like a sponge, you can take another one. We've got plenty, so feel free to grab one. Uh, if you look around the room on the communion tables, there are sermon notes. They look like this. And if you like to, you can grab one of those. And on the back, there's some stuff that goes deeper into what we're talking about, some questions to reflect on what we'll talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Version. When you download it, it's just going to say Bible. And when you open it, you'll click on More and then Events in that, and we will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements. You'll get everything that goes with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Mark chapter 16, verse 7, and it says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people what it means to understand that you have gone before us and that we can trust you in the words that you say and we can follow you as you lead us into new and true and real life with you and with one another. And so I ask that in our lives you would gain great glory as we live in the joy that you bring and that this world would know how good you are by how your people love you because you first loved us. Amen. Have a seat. At Element right now, we're going through this book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, and we're taking a break from that today for you, so you're welcome, because Ecclesiastes is all, it's meaningless, and it's very depressing. So I'm going to not be so depressing with you today. What we're going to do is uh, give you a precursor of our summer series. Our summer series, we're going to do this thing called I Believe in Miracles. You sexy thing, right? It gets gets stuck in your head, and that's okay. It's it's supposed to. Uh, But Ecclesiastes was so long, we're doing 20 weeks up to summer, then taking a break for summer, then at the end of summer we're going to do the last 12 weeks of Ecclesiastes, but during the summer we will do that I believe in miracles. And this is like all the miracles in the Bible, the ones that kind of capture our imaginations. We're going to take a little different look at what they actually look like though. Uh, So today I'm not going to talk about the miracle of resurrection that you'd probably think I would because it's Easter. I'm actually going to talk about the miracle of forgiveness. You're going to say, well, why is this whole thing about forgiveness? Well, because in our world there's this thing called sin. And if someone says, what'd you do today? And you say, I went to church. What'd you talk about? And you say, forgiveness and sin. They're going to say, yep, sounds like you went to church, right? Okay, Uh, today, sin is really this misunderstood word that sounds so archaic and something that like weird religious people will use to point our disapproval of other people and their actions. The truth is that sin is more like a virus. It gets into us and it affects us. It's infected all of us. Like our earliest memories in our lives are really seen through this lens of this thing called sin. Like our first words are no and mine. And then we get older, and that's how we live the rest of our life. No and mine. It's like in our lives, we're still working to try and be our own gods rather than trust who God made us to be. Uh, Sin has this roots in what we call rebellion against God and his truth. Like, we may say, oh, I don't rebel against God and his truth, but we don't like God telling us what to do at all. It's, It's why when we come across something in the Bible that we don't like, we're usually like, oh, it doesn't mean that, or it's not applicable to me today, or we have all these excuses about it. Sin rebels against the world and the way that it was made and the way that God calls us to live in it by being his image bearers and learning how to love one another. And sin is what violates God's 
peace with us and with others. Sin is what brings about separation in relationships. If you've ever seen a relationship go bad or you've been in one, it's that wedge that gets in between that as you hurt one another and it drives you farther apart. That same thing has also been in our relationship with God. It gets between us and it drives us further apart and eventually we're told it brings death. And it's usually easier to point to all the things around us that we think are sin rather than look at our own lives and look to ourselves and what's in here. But we must be willing to look at what's in here if we ever hope to live in this new true life. And this is where the miracle of forgiveness comes in because the most important relationship that we have broken first and foremost is the one with God himself. But the beauty is that God comes to us in the person of Jesus and he offers us forgiveness and grace to have his peace restored so we can be in relationship with him again. So what I want to do today is I want to grind this a little closer to home and I want to talk about our most common sin and see if I can't get you to understand the miracle of forgiveness in regards to that because we're going to talk about lying today. Be like, I don't lie. I never lie. See, you just lied. You know where liars go. Okay. (laughs) Have you ever seen a child lie? Yes, we have all seen kids like, who did this? Uh, I don't know, it wasn't me, it, it, was, it was somebody else. You know, Where do kids learn to lie? Well, I think it's ingrained deep into us. Ever since the fall, we have this deep-seated thing for self-preservation, even more than love for God. We don't want to get in trouble, we want to hide from things, and we think they're wrong, we might get in trouble, so we'll lie to get out of it. The human fallen condition is one where we say a lot of times we want to know the truth, or we want the truth spoken to us, but we're always prepared to lie when it's necessary. Like one little Sunday school girl says, a lie as an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in times of trouble. (laughs) Right? Do you know the Oxford Dictionary for the year of 2016? Word of the year, post-truth. Post-truth. One researcher said the number one finding in surveying people about lying is people lie about how much they lie. (laughs) I think it's funny. Whatever. Our lies are not fooling or surprising to God. God's not like, oh my goodness, how? I didn't know. They're they're all ridiculous to him. It's like one of the little kids around here who will grab a donut and eat it. And you say, do you eat a donut? And they say, no, when they got sprinkles all over their face. It's the same thing. God goes to Adam in the garden. Adam does the one thing God tells him not to do. Do you eat from the fruit? And Adam's like, no, uh, well, it's the serpent. It's the woman. It's your fault. You gave me the woman. Ah, I want out of this. What am I going to do? It's what happens there. And so Jesus knows what's in our hearts. It's usually not that pretty. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Now, Matthew is a guy who lived with Jesus during his ministry. He's a disciple of Jesus, and he writes this gospel account. In this gospel account, you have this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most read and most loved sermon Jesus ever gave. At Element, we went through this before. It took us a year to go through the entire thing. Now, when Jesus talks in the Ten Commandments, many of the things he, or in the Sermon on the Mount, many things he says goes back to the Ten Commandments. Like when he talks about anger, he begins with the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. It's the same thing with sexuality. He goes back to you shall not commit adultery. And so based on this, you would expect if he talks about lying, he'd go back to the Ten Commandments and say you shall not bear false witness. But technically he doesn't. In Matthew 5, to 37, this is what Jesus says. Again, you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not uh, swear false but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You may think you can by dyeing it, but it's still going to grow out that same old color. You have to dye it again. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So every culture in the world has line. It's why every culture in the world has 
oaths and things that they will say around that. And when you make an oath, you generally invoke something sacred, like may the gods deal ever so severely with me if I don't tell the truth or if I don't follow through or I swear on my mother's grave. I swear by all that's holy. I swear on a stack of Bibles. Oaths were around in the ancient world as well. Israel was taught to make oaths that they did in the name of the one true God. Deuteronomy 6.13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So in Jesus' day, though, the Jews came to a place where they didn't want to use the name of God in case they didn't follow through so they wouldn't say it. And so they're already hedging their bets, right? I don't want to say the name of God because I know I might not follow through. And so they would start to swear by things like Jerusalem or heaven or the temple. Hence what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what Jesus does is he goes to the heart with the oath system, what the problem is with it. And the problem is we don't tell the truth. And we run around using pressure and guilt and a song and dance to try and impress all these other people with our sincerity to get them to believe us. In the Old Testament, it condemned lying by the use of oaths because so often they treated oaths like these training wells. Like if you swear by the name of the one true God, well, you're more likely to keep your oath. But what that is, it's really more fear. It's more fear of God and breaking that oath. And because people love legalism, they would start to say things like, well, if you keep your oaths, well, then you're righteous. And it's not righteousness. Again, it's fear of the law. It's fear of God to keep you away from doing something you know is wrong, but you really want to do. And so when Jesus shows up, he says, let's just get rid of all the training wheels. And I want you to begin to live as a people who live the way God called you to live. And what does that look like? You don't have to pressure other people. You don't have to deceive or manipulate other people. All you do is say, yes, it's like this, or no, it's like that. It's that we start to love others more than we love ourselves and our own desire to get our way because we have a desire to live in the kingdom of God and live out God's will. One writer says this, you can tell somebody the truth without loving them, but you cannot love somebody without telling them the truth. Now, all of this is not to make you feel bad about yourself because, if, quite honestly, we are all a bunch of liars, okay? We all do it a lot in our lives. But you need to be encouraged because the Bible is full of liars. It's like everybody in there except for Jesus is like a big old liar. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Aaron, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, David, Samson, Herod, Ananias, Sapphira. But the most epic fail in the Bible that I want to talk to you about this morning is from this guy that Jesus says, I'm going to use you to build my church. This guy named Peter, the rock. Yeah, I can't do it, but you know, the rock. Like the re- that's, <laughs> this is my rock in prayer. I look nothing like him. You can tell. So if you have a Bible, uh, and you're still in Matthew, flip over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, the night before Jesus dies, he warned his disciples, you are all going to disown me, you're all going to fall away, you're all going to run away. Matthew 26, verse 33, after Jesus says this, Peter, the rock, answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus is like, all these other losers you got following you, they may fall away, but this guy, not going to happen, right? Jesus said to him, Peter, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you... Peter will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So here's a question for you. Do you think Peter was sincere when he said that? Okay, two of you, yeah? What about the rest of you? Yeah? Yeah? Totally sincere. Totally sincere. He's probably had tears in his eyes. He's probably like, you know, I can see myself just being martyred right alongside you, Jesus. Whatever. I'm going to follow you forever. We're going to see how that works out in just a second. But I know this is true because this is just like me. 
There are so many times I'll say or do something stupid, and I'm like, God, I'm so sorry. I'll promise I'll never do that again. And two hours later, I forgot what I promised, and I'm doing the dumb thing again. It happens to me all the time. Peter here predetermines with all his sincerity that he would tell the truth about his relationship with Jesus. So I'll show you how that works out. A few hours later, Jesus is arrested. He is on trial. Uh, Peter gets as close as he really dares to get outside of the place where Peter is on trial. And a servant girl sees him, and she says that, oh, you were with Jesus, weren't you? Matthew 26, verse 70 says, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Now, Peter doesn't say, I never followed Jesus, because his lie isn't that blunt. It's, I do not know what you mean. He's probably trying to convince himself this is true. She's talking gibberish. I don't know what she, this is what white lies do in our lives, right? We, we kind of think, oh, it's not really what they're saying it is. I'm going to think it's this other thing. We do this whole song and dance in our hearts to get around what we know when we're really lying. Sometimes people get totally offended when you call them out on a white lie. Oh, I'm not lying, but you know you're lying, right? Just me. Okay. We're going to talk about me this morning apparently. <laughs> Nothing to do with you. Okay. It's, it, it's great. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. So Peter leaves where he's at. He gets a little farther away because he probably thinks if I stay there, more people are going to see me and think I was with Jesus. So he moves his body a little bit farther away. Now, this is interesting because research today has shown that our bodies tend to betray us when we lie. Our bodies, when we lie, we tend to cover up our mouth or we might cough or we cover up our core or we look in a different direction because lying starts to disintegrate who we are. He denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. So the first time he starts with his yes or no, right, and and he was lying. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But the next comes the O's. Oh, I promise. I cross my heart. Hope to die. I put a thousand needles in my eye. I don't know the man. I, and you don't know what form the oath took. It could have been by Jerusalem or the, or the temple. I'll swear on a stack of Torahs, whatever it is. But this is the most striking thing because this time it's now direct. It's not, I don't know what you're talking about. This time it's, I don't know the man. And so Peter in his life has now gone from total sincerity of I'm ready to die for you to the place of where he's now lying to protect his own skin. And if you don't know, lying is usually easier the second time around because you're trying to cover up the first lie. I know that, and I'm not going to put you on the hot seat because apparently you guys don't even want to be like, uh. <laughs> I have done this, and I understand this a lot. Peter cannot even hear bring himself to say the name of Jesus. I do not know the man. Like he's not sure of the man's name. Research shows that when we tend to sin against other people, a lot of times we will stop using a person's name because it helps to not think of the other person as a person. One commentator says, the deceptive soul is always a divided soul. Chapter 26, verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. So this is the third time, right? Then he began to look and curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. So Peter is from this place called Galilee. People from Galilee, that's in the north, they had this accent. Just like today, accents will kind of give people away from where they're from. Like some people have like a hillbilly accent, and we think, oh, well, that's low IQ. And if someone has like a British accent, for some reason, we think that they're smart, even though they can be dumb as a box of rocks. But hey, you talk like an Englishman, you must be really smart, things like that. To the natives in Jerusalem, this central city, Galileans were hicks. Your accent betrays you. I don't know what my own doctor is. I don't know that man Jesus. Who that man Jesus? That's my hillbilly. 
I don't know what your hillbilly sounds like. That's mine. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'm just being offensive all around. I don't know. <laughs> then he, Peter, began to book a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. I don't know that man. I don't know the man. That's, okay, whatever. So the text says, Peter here is cursing himself. May God strike me dead if I'm not telling the truth. But Peter knows he's not telling the truth. So what would that say about his faith in God? It could be Peter is cursing the people who are asking him, like, God curse you or God damn you or what's the matter with you? Why don't you believe me? Why don't you listen to me? I don't know the man. I don't love him. I didn't follow him. But in all honesty, and you may find this hard to believe, but in the way the Greek text is written there, it could actually be, then he began to evoke a curse himself. Not on himself, but himself began to invoke a curse. And he could be cursing Jesus. God curse him. God damn him. God strike him. I don't know him. Peter is somebody who has now gone to the place where the God in his life is himself. I love what John Ortberg says about this passage. He says, when we lie, we don't become atheists. We just change altars. Oh, such a good line, such a good line. And then the rooster crows after the third denial, uh, chapter 26, verse 75. And Peter remembered the saying, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And Peter here probably feels as far away from Jesus as he ever has felt in his life. And that's what lying does. That's what sin does. It separates us. Have you ever been in a relationship that has gone bad or is going bad and you have this thing between you and it just starts to separate you further and further? That's sin. It's what it does. It separates us. And we are a people who sin and rebel against God and we separate ourselves from him. Eric Auerbach wrote that this story of Peter and his tears could not have been found in any other ancient literature. He writes this, A scene like Peter's denial fits in no antique genre. It's too serious for comedy, too contemporary and everyday for tragedy, politically too insignificant for history. It portrays something neither the poets nor the historians of antiquity ever set out to portray, the birth of a spiritual movement in the depths of the common people. And that's what this story is where the inbreaking of grace into the tears and the betrayals of a backwards fisherman become the occasion of one of the greatest miracles of true and real forgiveness. The tradition uh, that for the rest of his life that said that Peter, when he was speaking somewhere, if someone ever wanted to embarrass him, they would crow like a rooster. Like he'd be preaching, they'd go, while he's preaching. Now think about that. Think about that. It's precisely in his greatest, in his greatest failure that he receives the greatest miracle of the greatest grace and forgiveness. After Jesus was crucified, the women go to the tomb to to see Jesus and and take care of his body. An angel is there and says, Jesus has written. And it's the verse I had you stand for at the very beginning, Mark 16, 7. And he says, but go tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And this isn't, and go tell Peter that big fat liar. It's go tell Peter, we're not done. We're not done. There's enough grace in the cross and forgiveness for him. And Peter will live in this power of forgiveness of the cross. He will find new strength, just like we find new strength that we can never generate on our own. The miracle of forgiveness is what stood between us and God, is what the story of the gospel centers around. Jesus' death, his resurrection, takes away the sin that stands between us. And then this result of the gospel is how we get to live in this grace and forgiveness and new life again. It's the miracle of what God did to rescue us from ourselves and our sin. Jesus is the one who calls Peter, just like he is the one who calls us into his grace. But the understanding of that miracle, when we understand it deeply, we'll want to go out and start to talk about it as well. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is going through all this stuff, he teaches these people how to pray. And one of the things he talks about is forgiving others because we've been forgiven. In Matthew 6, 12, he says, And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And some people totally misunderstand what Jesus says here. Like a guy named Charles Williams says this, No word in English carries a greater possibility of terror than the word as in that clause as we have. Like Jesus goes on with this postscript in verse 14, but if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Some people take this and it's like Jesus has been talking about life and hope and God and how to pray and live in the world and relationship and P.S. If you don't, God's not going to forgive you and there's hell. Right? Does that sound like Jesus? The answer is no. Okay. (laughs) Is this on? Seriously, seriously. Is that how you you get people to forgive other people by threatening them? It might work for your kids. Apologize or get a spanking, right? And your kids are like, I'm sorry. But they're not really sorry. They just don't want the spanking. That's the point. Part of our problem is we have this perspective in our lives that God has to forgive us. That's his job. It's like this match made in heaven. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. Perfect. Yeah, (laughs) this is awesome. Jesus here is not sane. Now, God could forgive you, but he's withholding forgiveness to motivate you to be more forgiving. What I think Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he's trying to reset us to understand what the new normal is supposed to be, which is really just meant to be the normal, but we mess that up from creation with our sin and our rebellion and living in unforgiveness. He's commenting on the nature of forgiveness and the human condition because there's a vast difference of wanting to be forgiven versus merely wanting just to get out of trouble. If you're honest, I think you can understand what I mean by this. Like, imagine a cop pulls you over. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, please just let me go. I'll never speed again. You know you're not sorry for speeding. What you're sorry for is getting caught, right? In real relationships with real people, of which God is real, if, if I want someone else to forgive me, it means we agree that we have actually done wrong. If I don't think I've done something wrong, I don't actually want or need to be forgiven. I, I once confronted somebody where I heard them talking about somebody else with a lot of vehemence behind somebody's back. And so I went and I confronted this person and I said, hey, what's going on? What they first did was they ignored it, then they changed the subject, and then they walked away from me. And then about two months later, I received an email that they sent to me and said, I forgive you for attacking me. And I was like, I can tell you you can stick that forgiveness, and, then, and then, I'll, then I'll really have something to ask for forgiveness for, right? Right? I didn't feel like I did anything wrong, so why do I want forgiveness? You know, maybe I didn't want them mad at me anymore, but that's not really wanting forgiveness. That's just wanting them to not be mad at me anymore. But do you see, if we want to be forgiven, if we really want not just to avoid trouble, it means we recognize that we have done wrong in our lives. We've talked about someone. We lied. We avoided. And we want to become a different type of people who no longer do that. Really, in the end, it becomes a difference between being true forgivers and understanding true forgiveness versus just wanting to be enabled or enabling other people. Because too often, we just want to enable other people or have people enable us in our sin and not confront us where true forgiveness actually has to take place. But you have to see in this text, God is not an enabler. Not at all. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Jesus will show up, he will have a conversation with Peter, and he will reinstate him, but he never enables him. If I think if we truly want to experience this forgiveness of God and what it really means, we agree with God about our sin, what it is, how bad, stop trying to ignore it and look away from it, but actually look full on at it, and realize that God forgives us, and he doesn't hold it against us. Forgiveness is always this gift of grace. 
But I think learning how to really live in that forgiveness sometimes takes work. Not work to be forgiven, but work to understand how to live in true repentance because of what God has done in our lives, which I also think is a gift of grace that God enables us with. I think if we are people who are always clinging to resentment of other people or holding grudges or bitterness or passive-aggressive behavior, we don't really want to forgive, and we don't want to be forgiven. What we want is to be enabled. We don't want to live in the new and real life that God calls us to as the result of the gospel. We don't really want to live in God's kingdom. The Apostle Paul will later say this in Colossians 3, 12, and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. How do we truly learn to forgive? We understand that God has first forgiven us. That changes us when we understand it. First John 4.20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Psychologically, it's impossible for us to know God's tender-hearted pity and mercy and grace towards us and yet remain hard-hearted towards everyone else. Dallas Willard talks about this, and he calls this the unity of spiritual orientation. Sounds very new agey, but it's not. What he means is we cannot have a posture towards God and another posture towards people, his creation, his image bearers. It's not that we shouldn't. It's that it becomes impossible for us because we're a one person with one character. And this is why it's important to understand this miracle of forgiveness. And when we live in it, we begin to have a unity in how we love God and begin to love others. I was reading this book recently by John Ortberg, and he pointed out this beautiful thing in The Lord of the Rings and how pity and grace and forgiveness is really central to the story. In the prequel to The Lord of the Rings, this book called The Hobbit, you might have heard about it, I don't know, but there's this character in it called Bilbo Baggins. And Bilbo Baggins, he's in this cave at one point, and he gets a hold of this ring of power, and he puts it on his finger, and he becomes invisible. Now, the person who lives in this cave is a creature named Gollum, and Gollum owns this ring, and it's his precious, and he really wants it. But, and so he wants to kill Bilbo so he can get his ring back, but he can't see Bilbo because Bilbo is invisible. And so Bilbo gets close to Gollum and he says he must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out. But then right before he does it, something happens in Bilbo's heart. And it says, a sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror, welled up in Bilbo's heart, a glimpse of endless unmarked days without light or hope. Bilbo has pity for Gollum. Gollum's not going to repent, but Bilbo refuses to repay evil with evil. He's going to repay evil with good. And so later what happens in this book called The Lord of the Rings, you have a guy named Frodo. He is Bilbo's nephew. And they find out this ring is an evil ring of power. And Frodo has this quest to go and destroy this ring. And on the way to the story of this ring, he runs into Gollum a few times. And he's exasperated and says to the wizard Gandalf, he says, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him. And what Gandalf says is pity. It's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. That's what pity did. It's the reason, in the end, the evil of the ring didn't turn Bilbo into Gollum because he started with a place of grace and forgiveness. And in the end, I'm going to, spoilers, um, in the end, you don't have to watch a nine-hour movie after this. Um, in the end, Frodo's not strong enough, this is the book and the movie, strong enough to destroy the ring. Gollum will actually bite Frodo's finger off, and as he does, he's like, yeah, and he, and he falls into the fires of Mount Doom, and the ring is destroyed. And what it tells you is that it is pity and grace and forgiveness that saved the world. Now, the guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings, a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, and he's a Christian. And there's a reason why hope and love and forgiveness and grace saved the world, because it did in Jesus. 
So often in our lives, we walk around and want other people to see us as brilliant and strong and beautiful, like we have it all together. So we lie. We try and put things out, little white lies, that we're better or different than we actually are. And in the end, we must understand we are loved and accepted on the grace and the pity of God. It is why Jesus went to the cross so we could have the forgiveness that we could never earn on our own. And we agree with God about our state and who we are, and that again changes us. The miracle is that the God of the universe paid for what separated us from him. That wedge that is driving us apart, God took care of that so we could be a people who learn to live in forgiveness. And if you are in this place today and you're wondering, well, where can I find a group of pitiful sinners who will wrong me and hurt me so I can practice forgiveness? Good news, you're here, okay? We are the community of the pitiful. We are saved by the miracle of grace and forgiveness. The resurrection really is forgiveness in action. And it's being offered to us as a people so we can have and live in new life. And guys, we, I think, need to understand as a people what it really means to have all of that taken away that stands between us and God and us and one another. I mean, maybe you've been in a relationship with somebody else and you've had that wedge that has been dividing you. And you get to a place where you're like, I'm not going to suck it up anymore. I'm just going to tell them how I feel. I'm gonna... And that wedge just gets bigger. God is the one who said, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to die for what separates me from you. I'm going to take it all away so that we can have a relationship again. This is what we remember at this place of communion, that what Jesus did where his body was broken and his blood was shed. So you break a cracker, you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It's a reminder of what he did to rescue us, to bring us back into relationship with him again. This miracle and grace and beauty of forgiveness, it changes us as we understand why we partake in communion. We don't pass communion around a room. It's a response to what God does in our hearts. And so you're invited to do that today. The band's going to come up as they do. I'm going to invite you to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back. And if you're in a place today where you have you know, hard-heartedness towards somebody else or maybe you're angry towards God because you thought God's just this evil, mean taskmaster who stands over your life and is always trying to make you do something you don't want to do, you have to understand the miracle of forgiveness is that God wants a relationship with us. The scriptures teach that we get to be called in to be God's children. God wants us. In, in adoption, you adopt somebody because you actually want them. God wants us. God adopts us. And in order to do that, he takes away all that stands between us and him in this miracle of forgiveness. And we get to live out in grace and hope and life again. Because that's what I would pray for all of us in this room, that we'd be a people who so understand the grace and the mercy of God that it changes how we live and the entire world around each of us because we understand that begins to change because of how we live in that mercy and grace and begin to live that out because God has first done for us. It's a beautiful thing of how God calls his people to live as the results of what the gospel does in our lives. Uh, There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of the worship. We do not pass a plate. Everything is a response to what God has done. Uh, There is no snacks outside uh, because I want you to get in your cars and leave. I need you out of the parking lot. So I got people in the parking lot. It's Easter. I don't know why, but that's Easter. But I would encourage you (laughs) to take some sermon notes. And on the back of that, you'll have some questions in that, right? And on those questions, maybe this week, sit down and talk to one another about what forgiveness is and what it entails and and how you've seen it. Because again, if we're just the people who say, oh, Jesus died for my sins, it really means nothing until we understand what our sins were and what God did to rescue us from them, where we agree with him 
what it looks like. Because in that, it mixes a humble people. That God doesn't save us because we're so great and wonderful. God saves us because we can never save ourselves. So God steps into our mess to rescue us and call us back home. And that's the miracle of forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us as a people to understand what it means that you are the one who rescues us. That we are not a people who have to try and figure out everything before we can come and stand before you. That we don't have to worry about stepping foot into a church building that lightning is going to strike us or the walls are going to fall down. Because you are reaching and calling and drawing us back to you from your tender-hearted mercy and grace. And I ask that you would teach us as a people to be honest enough to look at the sin that was and is and even will be in our lives and to understand the miracle of your forgiveness, the miracle of that grace that has been bestowed upon us and that that in turn would not make us a self-centered people but it would make us a people who begin to see outside of ourselves and understand the love that you have for your creation, for your image bearers, and that we would be those who would be willing to go out and speak of this great forgiveness and grace that we have experienced that can make a difference in the entire world because you have rescued us first. Father, I ask today that we would begin to love you because you first loved us. That we would live in this miracle of forgiveness because you have first forgiven us. And that what we do will be glorifying and honor to you because you are our great God who has rescued us. And we ask all these things in your son's good name. Amen.